Saints, good morning and welcome. Passing the baton number 11, 26th of January 2008. And the title I've uh, given this little one is a bit quirkish. Should women wear hats in church? Um, it's meant to be light-hearted, but it actually has sombre undertones because for centuries the church in the West has frowned on women in ministry. Uh, declaring the role of leadership is male, women should not teach men, etc. And even taken to an extreme, they should wear hats in church. Um, have their heads covered, that is. I came into Christianity with that one, and in some religious circles, regrettably, it's still around today. And much is made in the charismatic church of the necessity of a single female having a covering. Joyce and I have been constantly made aware of that one. Uh, is this biblical? Are these the things that the Bible really says about women? Are we so unable to hear God, so untrustworthy and so easily deceived that we cannot be placed in positions of responsibility and authority in the church setting? What about us all being priests and kings? I'm not being provocative. These are the questions we must face, ask and search the scriptures for the answers. Society at large has no problem accepting women in roles of responsibility, Mrs Thatcher, whatever your personal view may be. And I think Mrs Nehru was an Indian Prime Minister, I'm not very good on history. Uh, both politically and socially, women are accepted in roles of both authority and responsibility. But what then has happened in the Church of Jesus Christ? Over the next couple of months we will unpick what the Bible has to say about headship, leadership, authority and submission. But for today, today we'll look at the role of women in society, the home and the church. And we're going to take an unbiased look at what the scriptures really say about the role of women in general, not only in the church setting. I want to look at what submission really means and what our role is in society and the church. This isn't feminism, it's the biblical view. In fact, Feminism per se has some good in it. Men who have studied church history and the Bible very deeply, um, Roger Price for one, taught that feminists were not altogether wrong, simply because women had been underrated for so long. Although the way the movement went about establishing their role could have been open to question. So keep a very open mind about what I'm teaching here and check it out for yourselves. At the outset, I need to say I was a rank feminist before I was saved. I'm completely delivered from that now, and I hold the biblical view of who I am and how God sees me, precious and honoured in his sight. I recognise that headship is male because men are responsible to God, and theirs is the greater authority. I do not find it difficult to submit to godly male leadership or headship, I did not say that leadership in the church is male per se, and I will explain this as I go on. Headship and leadership are two different things. Honouring the other sex is a sign that you are fully healed in your own gender and identity. I'm not threatened by male leadership or headship, neither am I in competition with them. I honour them in both capacities from my position in Christ. I know whose I am and who I am. As Joyce May would say, I'm not where I was, I'm not where I'm going to be, but I'm on my way. I'm deeply indebted to those men who have approached the scriptures from a non-chauvinistic mindset. And I include in this list Hugh B. Black, 
who wrote a book, it's out of print now, but you could possibly get it on Amazon in the second-hand thing, A Trumpet Call to Women. It was written in 1988. And to Roger D.G. Price, whose historical input has been invaluable. And to David Hillsley, a personal friend and scholar of Hebraic studies, for his paper, The Role of Women in the Synagogue and in the Early Church. Thanks, guys. Without your input, this would never have been possible. Remember, we always try to approach the scriptures from a Jewish viewpoint or we get the wrong interpretation of what's being said. This subject is no different. We'll approach it from the point of view of the culture and time at which it was written and to whom it was written and we will look at how it applies to us. We'll look carefully at what the original words meant and therefore what the writer was trying to convey. We will also examine changes that have occurred historically, bringing us to where we are now in the 21st century. Looking at it from an Hebraic point of view will show us what God really intended us to hear and see about ourselves and where we fit in the great scheme of things. So sit back, relax and enjoy finding out who you really are, your role and purpose. This is for your edification and enjoyment. So in Genesis 1, 26-28, we see God's plan. And God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's from the New King James Version. The word man here is humanity, or mankind as a race, humanity as a whole. It's not speaking of gender. Woman was created fully equal to man. She is in no way secondary in terms of her status or anything else. Both the man and the woman are created in the image of God himself. I want you to keep this in mind because when we come to look at biblical submission, which is a related subject, you will see it's a voluntary thing. First to Christ as the living head, the kephale, as uh, the Greek says, that's K-E-P-H-A-L-E, as the head of the body, and not arche, as of ruler, A-R-C-H-E. And then to each other, out of mutual affection, one for the other. We will be looking at this in our study next month. And Genesis 5-2, he created them male and female and blessed them, and called them mankind in the day they were created. So by God's sovereign will, man and woman were created equal in his image and likeness. The woman has different characteristics and functions from the man, vive la différence, but they are both equal. My right and left hands are totally opposite, but I cannot do without either. I'll ask Joyce at the minute. They are both equally important to me. Such is the relationship between man and woman. When we marry, we're intended to fill each other's gaps, covering the weak areas in the other so that the whole is presented one complementing the other, supporting, nourishing, and enabling each other. And the first principle is of God's created order. 
If we do not understand this at the outset, we will not understand what follows regarding the whole issue of the woman's place in society and in the church and authority and submission generally. It's crucial. We absolutely have to see that it's God's created order we must follow. And remember when we started way back last year, I did the order of, which was in operation before the fall. And that was, number one was God, number two the angels, number three mankind, that's all human beings collectively, whether male or female, it's a generic term. Number four, animals, five plants, and God gave mankind rule over animals and plants. The principle of authority is the higher the order, the greater the authority. And the principle of authority is related to God's created order. We can see this in relation to, for instance, the Prime Minister. He has the authority vested in the office to make decisions which affect the whole of the country. We can't pop down to Downing Street and say, I don't think I agree with you doing that. His is the authority because of the position he holds particular to the office. The rank is with the office, not with the person. The person has earned the right or is qualified to hold the position which gives him or her the authority. And we see this right through society and it's God-given. Romans 13, 1 and 2, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. This is God's principle of authority being worked out in society even if we personally do not happen to agree. Some people in the church today do not honour the fact that God is a God of order and some people, both men and women, have been called to a position carrying more authority than others. And this is the source, the wellspring of so much dissension in the church. One is people who have not been called into office, exercising ungodly control over the flock. And the other is those who have been called into office, who are unable to exercise their God-given authority because the flock will not come under it, because they do not recognise it. It may be that this teaching will fill the gap and bring understanding in order that we can move as God ordained us under the loving care of godly headship and leadership. An understanding of the principles of authority as God created it is the key to right living. So we have the order as created by God. God himself, angels, mankind, animals, plants. So God planned for a perfect man and a perfect woman to found a perfect race and inhabit the earth. In this plan there's no suggestion of one ruling over the other. They would both have a perfect relationship with God. They would perfectly fill their complementary roles. They were created as spiritual beings to have a relationship with God. But they were also created to have an earth life. A life on earth and a life in God were at this stage in no way incompatible. In other words, there was no division between the natural and the spiritual. The division came as soon as sin came into the garden. Prior to the fall, they had their own individual spiritual lives 
and their lives in relation to each other. It is the second of these which affects the woman. When God gives man the rulership over her as a result of the fall, in the spiritual sphere there is no such regulation. Rulership then is entirely in the earthly, natural realm and does not relate to the woman's relationship to God through the Holy Spirit who indwells her. We need to separate these two or we will get into deep water when we look at Paul's writings which appear sometimes to contradict themselves. So Genesis 3.16 and the result of the fall. The first commandment by God to be fruitful and multiply was meant to be a delight but now it's going to be painful. The last verse says Adam shall rule over Eve. What does this mean? Many people have taken this to be a pattern of what the male-female relationship is supposed to be. But this is the curse of God on the now corrupted nature. It is not a pattern which God has given for relationships between men and women. What started out as an intimate, open relationship has now been twisted, distorted, skewed, bent and corrupted. That's the meaning of iniquity. Adam sinned. Adam is going to bring forth from the earth by the sweat of his brow. He didn't sweat before, it was easy. Eve is going to have pain and travail in childbirth. She wouldn't have experienced pain before, but now she will. The very thing God has said to them about being fruitful and multiplying will become a source of toil, pain and difficulty. For the woman now, her desire will be for her husband, but he will have rule over her. What's God saying here? What he's saying is, what you want from your mate is a close, intimate relationship, but what you will get is a master. What you desire is a lover, but because of the corrupting influence of the fall on Adam, what you will get is a lord, someone who will not understand you and will tend towards dominion of you. So history changed the original order of creation and history changed earthly order. Adam had authority when he was created over the animals and the plants. He had dominion, but he never had dominion over Eve. When the fall came as a result of his sin, things changed. Animals and plants were still under him, but now they had the right to rebel because Adam had rebelled against God. That's how weeds and thistles and thorns sweat and other things came into existence. That's how sickness, disease and death came in. What also happened was that the man carried the fall genetically. The DNA of the fall is passed on by him, not by the woman, which is why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. What also happened at the moment of the fall was that because Eve was deceived but Adam sinned, the role of men and women and the order of creation was changed very slightly. Because Eve was deceived, God decreed that man would have the greater authority. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's new. It's a direct consequence of the fall. It's not related to the original plan of God for the man and the woman. And we're not told whether this is a punishment on Eve for her sin or simply a natural consequence of it. 
The Hebrew word for rule is mashal, M-A-S-H-A-L, a primary root meaning to rule one person over another. The woman's authority was now slightly reduced and the man's authority was increased. Remember, they are now fallen and their communion with God is broken. The order has changed. Women do have some authority in the natural realm, but the man has the greater. Now this is what some men want to hear because they think that this gives the man all he needs to boss the women around. This is not true. Just because he has the greater authority does not mean that the woman is inferior. Male and female are equal in God's sight, equal in status and rank. It's just that the man has the greater authority and therefore he carries the responsibility, or the can if you like, the buck stops with him. Women are not inferior to men, they have a different role. Remember we're looking at the order of authority, at the earthly order of government as ordained by God. So to sum up, Adam and Eve had been created equal. If this, his was the headship, initially there was no division between the spiritual and the natural line. of dominion, rulership or submission. But with the entrance of sin by the woman, the natural was placed in subjection to the man. In things spiritual, she retained her own identity before God and was not made dependent on man or answerable to him. Woman's relationship was always direct to God and never through the man. For both male and female, their ultimate loyalty was to be to God alone. Put another way, they must put the first commandment first, loving God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. Woman's ultimate loyalty must ever be to God. The second Adam. When Jesus came on the earth, his death on the cross and ascension changed the order of things again. In Ephesians 1, 20-23 we see it. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. These verses show us that Jesus Christ the man was raised above the angels and the demons and because we too are in Jesus without gender difference we are positionally seated far above all principalities, rulers and authorities. So the order changed again to God, Number one, Jesus Christ the man and the church corporate, male and female. Three, angels including fallen angels. Four, unbelievers. Five, animals and six, plants. We notice here a subtle change. We are in Christ but Christ is placed below God. The significance of this will come later in the study but I want you to hold on to this because it's a fundamental fact that needs to be held when we come to look at the whole issue of headship, authority and covering and in particular 1 Corinthians 11.3 and 8-12 to which are usually the ones that are taken issue some of you may have been in churches where this has been an issue some of you may not 
Um, I've been in both. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, the woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So before the men get too excited, every one of them was born of a woman and they couldn't come any other way. So we'll unpick this later on. The essence of femininity is the capacity to respond. Having seen God's created order, we need to look at what true femininity is. The essence of femininity is the ability or capacity to respond. That is why the church is called the Bride of Christ. Both male and female in the church are required to be responders to God's initiative. Therefore he calls himself the husband of Israel and the bridegroom of the church. It's relational. God in his relationship to the church is the initiator as he was to his chosen people Israel to whom he was husband. This describes relationship. Our part is only ever to respond to his initiative. This is the way it always is. He initiates, we respond. Whether male or female, this is the way God does it. When we came into salvation, he drew us and we responded to that drawing. The way we come in is the way we go on. When we stop being responders and try to be initiators or innovators, we get ourselves into trouble and lose that intimate relationship with him. This is why we are referred to as the bride. The whole thing is relational, not sexual. The trouble comes when we initiate and expect him to respond. You will hear people say, and I have said it myself in the past, men, you're part of the bride just as we are sons, so get used to it. Because I didn't understand, and I was missing the point. The issue of the bride is one of response, responding to the bridegroom. Just as the issue of sonship is maturity, not gender. We are only sons when we're fully mature. Male or female makes no difference. Sonship is maturity. And again, the Greek is the word huios, H-U-I-O-S, for you who are taking notes. Fully mature son. You can remain daughters if you like, but I'm headed for sonship because that is biblical. He's bringing many sons to glory, not daughters. Fully mature mankind, able to be trusted with daddy's checkbook. Everything we experience and the trials we go through are to bring us to the place where he can trust us as we trust him. Sonship is for every member of the body. So what's the point I'm making here? There is no difference between the sexes as far as God is concerned. He is not gender fixated. To Jesus the whole bride is one soul and female because she responds to him. One person, male and female, we are the body and the body is not divided. 
There is no sex in soul, La Marechale, General Booth's eldest daughter used to say, and he himself said, and I quote, my best men are women. Work that one out. We are equal in God's sight. Colossians 3.11 There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. It's about him and his eternal plan to have a people for himself to show forth his glory. He showed me once he saw the whole of the body of Christ, those who are in heaven already, those who are to come and those on the earth, as one person one soul it's us that split things up it's us that break it up in denominational barriers and male female it's not of God he sees us as one one bride one girl not rows of them <laughs> so woman as gender as women however we were created to respond and that's the feminine side and we'll only find our true identity and completeness in Jesus as our Lord and in God as our Creator when we come to understand this. Only then can our true and highest self emerge. We cannot hope to find that identity outside of God himself who desires that we come into an intimate relationship with him and see our reflection in his eyes. Our true identity is found only and exclusively in the eyes of the one who loves us 100% all the time. He loves us as much on our bad days as our good days. He's not performance orientated. He does not look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. He always speaks to our potential, not to our faults. It doesn't depend on us. It's entirely dependent on who he is. He loves us because of who he is, not because of who or what we are or what we have or haven't done. He is the reason he loves us. Getting an initiator or responder in the right place will solve numerous problems for us. So if you have been trying to initiate or innovate something for God, instead of waiting for his initiative, maybe this is the day you need to repent, change your mind, have another thought and get into alignment with Jesus. Who is your head? The biblical view then is that woman is a power equal to the man, a mirror image of the man. It could be translated that God created the woman equal to and adequate for the man in every respect. But we are born and we live with the default distortion of the fall. If you ask a man in the world what it means for a woman to be compatible with him, you will get a variety of answers, but basically the answer would be that they are there to meet his needs. This is a self-referential response, a self-centered response, an eros response we will call it. She's there to meet my needs, to do what I want to complement me. The woman usually simply wants to find a mate and settle down. This is a God-given drive, but because of the fall, marriages continually fail and break down. Before we're born again, this is the only way we can function too. In Jesus, that is being put right. The bent towards the creature is being straightened. The eros is being changed into agape. What about love and marriage? 
In contrast to the pagan world, both ancient and in the time of Jesus, women in the Bible were viewed as persons and partners, not as property. And that is why biblically marriage is viewed as a partnership. It's not a corporation where the husband is the chief executive and the wife is anything from a secretary to a nursemaid. Marriage is a partnership of equal but distinct people who in love become interdependent, not codependent. One does not rule over the other. So marriage was designed to be a partnership of two equal and independent people, both fully in the image of God, but who in love become mutually submitted to one another to the glory of God. Man and woman then are equal in value, dignity and worth, but remain different in certain qualities, functions and physiology. The reason I'm stressing this is that it's been so abused in Christianity, and I would say probably in the charismatic church as much as anything, which is very largely a male-dominated ecclesiastical structure which has suffered due to its treatment of women in the midst. So what is woman? Biblically, the qualities of a woman are portrayed as giving, nurturing and encouraging. She provides love and security in the home. The one who is an enabler would be a good description of a woman. We got a brilliant um, email, that was what I wanted to say to you yesterday. Someone sent us, Kathy Stewart, and it's all about when God created woman. And the angels are saying, um, she's very soft. And she's leaking. There's, there's water coming out of her eye. <laughs> and the Lord says, that's a tear. I made her like that. You know. And it goes on to say how you know she can do all these things. and It's absolutely brilliant. I'm going to ask you if I can get it onto a PowerPoint demonstration because it's just beautiful. It is a PowerPoint thing and it's been sent through the email so I wondered if we could convert it. So it mirrors what I'm saying here. She also has the qualities of leadership as we can see from some of the women detailed in the scriptures. The woman is the one who gives life and nourishment to the child she carries in her womb. She cares for and nurtures it when it's born. She's multifaceted and has the ability to multitask. She's also an encourager to her husband if he will receive it. Interestingly, wisdom is portrayed as a woman in the scriptures, but I'm not going to press that one too far. I had a temptation to do that. On the downside, she can be a negative influence on her husband as is influenced by the scriptures at least twice, showing us what happens when a man hearkens to the voice of his wife. The first is Adam in Genesis 3.17, and the Lord says to him, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, that's what's happened and the fall came in there because he listened to her. The second was Abraham in Genesis 16.2, and Abraham heeded the voice of Sarai. And the one that comes to my mind now is Job. His wife said to him, why don't you curse God and die? But Job held on to his integrity. So we have to be careful and be sure that the advice we give our husbands comes from above, not below. That's James 3.17. We can be a real asset to our husbands, but we don't want to be a liability. So what about woman finding her true identity? 
In God's eyes, a woman is a wondrous creation, someone special, with a unique God-given nature endued with the ability to respond, relate, nurture, encourage and enable, together with a willingness to serve. As with man, woman was made in the image and likeness of himself. God made woman to be equal to the man and adequate for him in every respect, as his wife and a mother to his children. But not only that, she has the ability to initiate and be a leader too, as we can see from the Proverbs 31 wife. When I speak about initiating things, I'm meaning to Godward. You don't tell God what to do or how you'd like to have it. Uh, it's okay to be an initiator on the natural level. That's why it's so important to split the two. There is a, a, um, a vertical and a horizontal relationship we're talking about here. So the Amplified Bible has a footnote like this on uh, Proverbs 31. Absolutely brilliant. Many daughters have done well, nobly and well, but you excel them all. What a glowing description here recorded of this woman in private life, this capable, intelligent and virtuous woman. It means that she had done more than Miriam, the one who led a nation's women in praise to God, Exodus 15, 20 and 21. Deborah, the patriotic military advisor, Judges 4, 4 to 10. Ruth, the woman of constancy, Ruth, 1, 16. Hannah, the ideal mother, 1 Samuel 1.20 and 2.19. The Shunammite, the hospitable woman, 1 Kings 4, 8 to 10. Huldah, the woman who revealed God's secret message to national leaders, 2 Kings 22.14. And Esther, the queen who risked her life for her people, Esther 4.16. So in what way did she excel them all? in her spiritual and practical devotion to God, which permeated every area and relationship of her life. Her secret, which is open to everyone, is the Holy Spirit's climax to the story and to this book. In Proverbs 31.30 it becomes clear that the reverent and worshipful fear of the Lord, which is the beginning and chief and choice part of wisdom, that's Proverbs 9.10, is put forth as the true foundation for a life which is valued by God and her husband as far above rubies or pearls, Proverbs 31.10. This then is the key to living the life of a totally fulfilled woman. Whether you are married or single, the prerequisite is a wholehearted, spiritual and practical devotion to God. Right, so, what's man? That's an interesting bit for us. Each of us has within us the balance of the masculine and the feminine. And a man without the feminine will never be like Jesus. The world's idea of a full-blooded male like Rambo, muscle-bound, stupid and individualistic and invincible, is not the God-given role of a man. The biblical man is strong and knows how to initiate and create order as Jesus did. He's also tender, compassionate, cherishing and sensitive. In other words, in a sense he has the feminine. A man who is in his strength who can also weep without shame as did David, Jesus, Ezekiel, Jeremiah and others. 
The essence of masculinity in the Bible is the God-given capacity to initiate, put things in order, create, organise, exercise dominion, as God said to Adam. This is why God places man as the head or the one responsible to him. Because it was to Adam that the instruction was given not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before Eve was created. If you look in Genesis 2, 15 to 18, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord said, It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. Here we clearly see the headship. Adam is responsible to God for telling Eve what they can and cannot do. The buck stops with him. He was given dominion, which is lordship, over the fish, fowl and earth, and he was not given dominion or lordship over his wife. His role was as a protector, and for that he was answerable to his creator. However, at the fall, as we've already seen, something happened that's profoundly affected the male-female relationship. He was given the rule, that word mashal, the primary root meaning one person ruling over another, over woman, and her desire was for him. Hence you get abusive relationships where the wife is beaten but refuses to leave her mate because she says, I love him. This is a direct result of the fall and the corrupting, distorting influence of what God intended in a marriage relationship. Now, like the earth fighting Adam, marriage will not be a bed of roses either. They will both have to work at it. The initial God-given desire for dominion is now out of balance. Adam's drive has changed to a desire for position, possession and power. To look good, feel good and be right. Men are usually striving for power and control. They're always striving to achieve status in life. They like cars with bigger and faster engines and louder exhausts. They like a sport where there is violence and domination of one team over another. Um, I'm not actually generalising. I realise that all men are not like this, but the majority of them are. And this is the result of the fall. Their drive changed. Even in Christian circles, the man tends to dominate by his accomplishments and what is acquired by his status, his income and his ministry, and sometimes, regrettably, even his sexual conquests, all of which indicate the fall of masculine nature. If you think I speak from a place of not knowing what goes on in leadership, in churches, regrettably, there is a lot of information that's come to my ears in the last six to eight months or year that has not been very edifying about leadership but this is the fall. What is actually going on in today's church is very seductive to the male fallen nature finding their identity in their ministry. A ministry can become an idol in your life because you look to the ministry for what God should give you. Is particularly prevalent, I believe, in the Christian music industry, which appears to differ very little from its secular counterpart in terms of the push to get to the top of their profession and to advertise it and market it in exactly the same way. 
This is not a criticism. It's something which we have to face and understand if we're going to come into all that God has for us. We need to come out of denial about our ambitions, hopes and wishes to discover whether they are God-given or stem from our old nature which needs the preeminence of position, possession and power. As we go on in our studies and learn more about the Eros shift in the church we will see how much of the world is actually in the church rather than the church being in the world. It is not true to say that you have to be like them to win them. As typically woman wants to find out who she is through her man or through her children, the man typically is driven to find out who he is and come to a sense of completeness in his life through his accomplishments, his possessions and sometimes his bank account. He wants titles, prestige and power. He's not satisfied with being a worker. He wants to be the president of the company or better still, own it. This drive for dominion in the male is manifested in the misinterpretation of many scriptures the male-dominated church has taken and used to keep women under the authority of men in an unbiblical fashion. Jesus came to set both men and women free in the power of agape love, not eros. But the shift has not yet taken place, we are yet carnal. The church operates largely in eros, not agape, bringing the mindset of the world straight in with the result that there are divisions and factions everywhere as leaders continually jockey for position. How eager is the man to go whom God has never sent? How fearful, diffident and slow his chosen instrument. That's a little poem from the back of uh, Hugh Black's book on, uh, about women. Um, a lady who worked with him for many years, single lady, uh, powerfully used by the Lord, uh, and she quoted that at the back of the book. We used to say, some are called, some are sent, some got up and went. So as with, as with the woman, the fool has left the man needing to find his identity and what he does rather than who he is. The solution for him, as well as for the woman, is first of all a fully restored relationship with his creator and then to make his creator his lord. This restores his centre. Anything else is like a pot swinging about on the potter's wheel, out of balance and misshapen. The key to man's restoration too is Jesus Christ as his centre. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were equal, but with the headship vested in the man, as I've said. Same kind of way that the Father is the head of Christ in the Trinity, although the Father and Son are regarded equal. One of those little mysteries. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, co equal, co-eternal. But when you look at the order, you see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So you've got uh, something going on there. The scriptures tell us that Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned. And much is made in some circles of the fact that Eve was deceived, but little of the fact that Adam did not stop his wife eating from the tree, although he obviously stood right next to her. The deception of Eve has held women back for centuries in a male-dominated church. The couple were equally culpable. She ate, but he stood by and watched what happened to her, and then ate. That's why the scriptures say that Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned. His was a deliberate action, 
and subsequently the result of the fall will be passed down by the male. And as I said before, if you didn't know why Jesus had to be born of a virgin, there's your answer. The human male carries the genes of the fall. Therefore Jesus' conception had to be, as the Catholics put it, immaculate. Didn't have fallen man involved in it. When we become Christians, everything changes again. Jesus is the second Adam, and in him everything is restored to its original order. So now we need to see the model of what headship really means. And we find it in John 13, 4 and 5. He took a towel and girded himself and began to wash the disciples' feet. The person who would become great will become a servant. The headship now of the man over the woman is to be like that of Jesus. The man loving his wife as Christ loves the church. A headship of loving and caring and serving. The order has changed. Woman is no longer to be ruled over or dominated by man. That is the new order of things in Christ. But we've brought our hedonistic, eros nature over into this new relationship with Jesus and it doesn't change automatically, if at all. So everything between husband and wife should be harmony now. But realistically, we know that this isn't the case. So how should Christians approach the situation when they have a deep difference of what, which way to go? And this is a quote, it's quite uh, sweet really from that book, A Trumpet Call to Women by Hugh Black, and it's in the context of decision-making and headship within marriage. They've got a difference here. So he suggests that the conversation might go like this. There are, however, situations not involving contradiction of biblical teaching, in which husband and wife, even after discussion, prayer and consultation with others, remain irreconcilably committed to different courses of action and are not prepared to give way for the sake of the other. Um, as uh, Sue Patterson used to say, a bit of intense fellowship they were having. There need not be many such cases, but in a fallen world there will be some. In them, the responsibility of the husband to lead and of the wife to respect his initiative requires her to yield to his decision. The manner in which such situations are handled is crucial. The husband may not be high-handed and stubborn, knowing that she will finally have to give way. That is not the model of Christ's headship. Neither may the wife be grudging and resentful. That is not the manner of our response to Christ. In the last analysis, when the two can devote no more time to individual and joint seeking of the grace of God to permit them to come to one mind or be willing to yield to another, an exchange along the following lines is in order. Husband. Not because I am inherently wiser or more righteous, nor because I am right, although I do believe I am or I would not stand firm, but because it is finally my responsibility before God, we will take the course which I believe is right. If I am being sinfully stubborn, may God forgive me and give me the grace to yield to you. Wife. Not because I believe you are wiser in this matter, I don't, or more righteous, nor because I accept that you are right, because I don't, or I would not oppose you, but because I am a servant of God, who has called me to honour your headship, I willingly yield to your decision. If I am wrong, may God show me. If you are wrong, may he give you grace to acknowledge and change it. I thought it was quite quaint. It's usually a domestic in which the police are called. 
Such decisions must be made. They can be steps to commitment to God which cement a relationship and assure both partners of the other's loving commitment. I'm still quoting from the book. They can, al they can alternatively be times which show sinful abuse. The sort of commitment outlined can be used to preserve the dignity and honesty of both partners by setting matters in their proper context. A hypothetical conversation, but one which proves that both partners must be equally submitted to the Lordship of Jesus for peace and harmony to be maintained within a Christian marriage. It's not an issue of right and wrong. When Jesus comes, he does not come to take sides, but to take over. As the church comes into her rightful position of submission to Jesus only, much of what currently causes strife and division will disappear within everyday relationships and within the church corporate as we shift slowly from Eros to Agape. And the one flesh relationship, someone mentioned it earlier on. This is part of the teaching on the role of this part of teaching on the role of women would not be complete without including something regarding the place of sexuality within marriage. In regard to the marriage bed, the Bible and Jewish tradition was literally 2,000 years ahead of itself. As I was saying during the break, the Bible and the instructions that God gave meant, were meant for Israel to show an example to the nations around them. This is how I intended marriage to be. This is the honour in which I hold it. So that was what the purpose was for the commandments, everything, so that they might, as indeed the church, might show how it should be done. Not that we become so grey that nobody sees how it actually should be done because we're so like everything that happens in the world. We need to be separated enough to show them this is how we do it. And it's always attractive. In Jesus' day, Jewish tradition had a great deal to say about sexuality between a husband and wife, and it's predated much of what we think are new insights in this. For example, the rabbis say that this text in Genesis 3.16 relates to a wife's sexual desire for her husband, you know, where she, she would want her husband but he would rule over her. In Jewish law, the theme is always the same when it comes to sexuality. It speaks of a woman's right and a man's duty to have sexual relationships with his wife based on a text in Exodus 21.10. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing and her marriage rights. From this, the rabbis derive three fundamental rights for a woman in marriage. If a man was unwilling or unable to provide these three fundamental things, the woman could petition the community for divorce. The first was food, the second was clothing, including shelter, and the third were her sexual rights. This was taken so seriously that all kinds of regulations were given to protect the woman's right to have her sexual needs met. Amazingly, this is totally the opposite of what our Christian culture has taught. For the Jews, the man is given extensive prescriptions about what to do and what not to do regarding the act of intercourse itself. His intent should always be to please his wife. He should never force himself upon her, especially if he is argumentative or drunk. It's always done with her cooperation and done for her enjoyment. 
that the man delights himself in his wife and vice versa. Hence Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent, for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul was a good Jewish boy. The Bible also teaches that a man in the first year of marriage is exempt from military duty so he can stay at home and rejoice in his wife. I won't go into too much detail here, but there are also prescribed minimum numbers of times that sexual relationships should take place based on the man's occupation. I've got your full attention. If he was a scholar, considered a very arduous occupation, he was obligated to have sexual relations with his wife less frequently than a manual worker, but at least once a week. A manual worker was expected to perform more frequently. Passion within the marriage is God-given. What price the woman have a headache every night? The husband's duty is clearly to meet the needs of his wife and that is part of the desire that is spoken of in Genesis. And it was taken so seriously that if a man was going to be gone for an extended period, there was a debate about how long that period was to be. If a married man was to be gone longer than 30 days to study with the rabbi, he had to have his wife's permission to go. Because by being gone for that long period, he was not there to meet her sexual needs. So we see there is something very special about the marital union and it's to be undertaken with mutual consent and it's to give mutual pleasure. 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5 that we looked at just now is mainline Jewish teaching. You know some people quote the thing that thank God I'm not a woman, I get up every morning I thank God I'm not a woman, I'm not a slave and I'm not something else. And the Western mindset has taken that as being a slur on women what it actually meant was that a woman didn't have the freedom to study like a man did because she had household duties to do. And he was saying, Lord, thank you that I can spend my time studying your word. Another way in which we misunderstand the Hebraic nature of the, of the scriptures. 